Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Join us this season as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Damney, explore the hidden life of water. We bring you conversations about the relationship between water and energy, manufacturing and Indiana's economy, treatment at the end of the line, and the impact of pollution on our communities. Today, we're talking about energy. When you flip on your light switch, no water comes out, but you are using water all the same. In fact, Indiana ranks third in the nation in total coal consumption, and water is a big part of that consumption. In this episode, we talk with A.J. Kondash, a research scientist with RTI International, and Ben Smith with the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. We discuss the role water plays in producing the energy that we use every day, and how the state is planning for the future of Indiana's energy needs. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with A.J. Kondash, an environmental research scientist with RTI International located in North Carolina. Dr. Kondash talks about water consumption across different methods of energy production and the environmental impacts of our energy use. My name is AJ Kondash. I'm a research environmental scientist at RTI International, and I work with the Clean Water for Carolina Kids program where we test uh, drinking water for lead at child care centers and schools across North Carolina. I also do work in energy conservation, water quality, um, pretty much a broad spectrum of environmental and um, health-based science. Awesome. And would you mind explaining a little bit of what RTI International is and what it does? Yeah, RTI International is a nonprofit organization. We have about 6,000 employees. And our goal is to improve the human condition using science and kind of the latest technology to impact the communities around us. So whether that's science-based, whether that's health or education-based, we kind of have our hands in a number of different areas. We've learned that just producing drinking water and cleaning wastewater requires a tremendous amount of energy. So today we're focusing on how water is used in energy production and how those processes impact our water resources. So can you share with us how water is used in energy production? To start with, just so we can understand how energy production works. So basically, when you use water in the energy production system, what you're doing is boiling the water to create steam. That steam passes through a turbine, which spins, and then that spinning turbine generates electricity in a generator. Pretty much any kind of power plant, whether that's coal, natural gas, nuclear, even wind or um, hydro, you know, they all use that spinning motion to spin a turbine to generate electricity. So in thermal power plants, which use energy to heat water to create steam, they pass that steam through a generator. And then the water that they use for that is either pulled from a river or a lake, or it's kind of recirculated through their system. So the the two methods that power plants use are called once-through cooling or recirculating cooling. Um, Once-through cooling sucks the water from a river, uses it to cool the steam back down, and spits it back out into the river a little bit hotter than when it was taken in. 
a recirculating system pulls the water in once and uses it until it all leaks out of the system or evaporates. And so depending on the different kind of technology a plant uses, a once-through system will really suck a lot of water in, but it spits most of that water back out. So we call that high water use or withdrawal, but really low consumption because all the water taken in is spit back out. The other way it works is in recirculating systems, you take that water out and it never returns to the river or lake that you pulled it from. And so that has higher water consumption, that water never returns, but really low water withdrawal because you're reusing the water constantly and you only have to pull new water to make up for leaking or evaporation. It it does, it does. Um, I have a couple of follow-ups. So one, you said that regardless of if it's coal, natural gas, or green energy, that water is used the same way for the most part? Yeah, so we have thermal plants, which use the water to create steam to spin the turbine. And then for the green energy, like wind and hydro, they actually use like the physical force to spin the turbine. So that would be the wind blowing the motor, which turns the turbine, or the water running through the turbines, which spins and creates the generation of electricity. Can you give us a general idea of a quantity, like how much water is used to create an hour of electricity? That's kind of the the great question. Let's see. So I did some kind of back of the envelope calculations to share. So for every megawatt hour of electricity that is generated, a natural gas plant will consume about one cubic meter of water through that time. A cubic meter is about 280 gallons. And then that same plant will withdraw only about 2.7 cubic meters per megawatt hour. And so we're kind of nerdy. We talk about megawatt hours, but you don't really understand what that is. So um, just for reference, a typical house in the United States uses 10 megawatt hours of electricity a year. So we're talking about around 2,000 gallons of water in this case to power a typical house for a year if you're using natural gas. Coal plants, on the other hand, are a little less efficient depending on the kind of make and style. So if they use uh, recirculating or combined cycle plants, that can range anywhere from about one cubic meter per megawatt hour to around three cubic meters per megawatt hour. So about triple the the energy consumption of a natural gas, and then about double the the water withdrawal. Okay, so you've talked about how um, these energy sources will use the water, like heat it up, and you know sometimes put it back, and sometimes it stays in the system. Are there any other ways that water resources are impacted by energy production? Yeah, definitely. So you know the the extraction of each of these fuel sources, whether it's natural gas or coal or anything really, the rare earth elements used in solar panels or wind turbines, all of those processes use electricity and water. And so we like to do something called life cycle analysis, which accounts for all of the water and energy inputs throughout the whole system from cradle to grave. And so for natural gas, that involves the water used for hydraulic fracturing. It involves the water used to mine the oil that the machines use on the sites to transport the natural gas. It includes things for like pipeline maintenance and everything. So all of those factors contribute to water use 
through each of these these processes. So the numbers I quoted you actually mostly incorporate all of those life cycle inputs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those life cycle water quality inputs are similar contamination wise. So like for hydraulic fracturing, for example, you take fresh water, you pump it into the ground, and then when it returns back to the surface, it's really salty, it's full of radioactive material, and it needs a lot of treatment. And so in that case, you're consuming a lot of fresh water and returning a lot of really dirty water that needs to be cleaned and processed and a lot of times can't really be reused. It just has to be injected into the ground and kind of sequestered away. Speaking about those contaminants and the byproducts of that production, here in Indiana, we have a lot of coal and we uh, actually rank third nationally in total coal consumption and coal consumption for electricity generation. Can you talk a little bit about coal ash? When a coal plant burns its coal, it creates kind of an ash. You know, you see ash in fireplaces and things. And the power plants need to actually handle and dispose of that ash. Right now, the best way they have to do that is to use on-site storage pits, where they just take that coal ash, put it in kind of a landfill setting. Most of the time, those aren't lined. And they just rely on putting water on top of that ash to prevent it from blowing away. But then the issue is a lot of times that water can pull the metals and things out of the coal ash, which can leach into the ground and potentially impact groundwater sources. Is that a case where like regulations don't exist or are falling short? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are regulations in how collage impoundments need to be set up and monitored. A lot of these are really well monitored and the discharge into the groundwater is pretty heavily regulated by the U.S. government, which is good. But that doesn't mean that it's prevented all issues, especially in cases where there can be hurricanes or flooding if you have those events where, you know, a, a coal ash pond would break or spill into the river, um, we've had a couple of cases like that here in North Carolina where you can actually see the coal ash entering the river and we don't really know what the long-term impacts of that are. Yeah, um, on that note of regulation, actually, um, we've also heard that burning coal produces mercury that goes up into the atmosphere, potentially comes back down. And some of that's even been found in our lakes here in Indiana. Are there any regulations in place addressing this? So there are a few regulations and a few kind of best practices that are implemented by power plants. But the main issue with electricity generation in the U.S. is that most of the power plants that are running have been running for 50, 30, 40 years. And so when you make regulations, a lot of times those older plants are grandfathered in. And so you can't really regulate what they're producing or what they're emitting. I mean, if you're going to build a brand new coal-fired power plant right now, you would put smokestacks in that scrub all of the contaminants out of the, the coal emissions. So they grab all of the CO2, they grab the heavy metals and mercury sulfur containing materials you know there there are systems in place that can do that that reduces their efficiency a little bit but the newer plants are so efficient and so good at what they do that most of the time 
they actually end up being even more efficient than the older plants that aren't regulated, even though they're not emitting anything. So I guess at the end of the day, you can build things that work really well right now. But the question is, the U.S. going to build new coal plants? I think they're trying to move away from that. And so they're relying on these older plants to kind of bridge the gap until they can transition into new, newer sources like natural gas or green energy. Can you talk a little bit about energy trends and looking towards the future? And yeah. also specifically, like how those changes might impact water quality and quantity? Definitely. So the, the big thing we were looking at, so we recently published a paper, well, I guess 2019, that's not too recent, but we looked at the transition away from coal and the adoption of natural gas. My primary work focused on looking at the water quality impacts of hydraulic fracturing. And so we were really interested to see, you know, if this increased use of natural gas in the U.S., especially because it's flexible and can help supplement green energy when the wind's not blowing or when it's not sunny. We were really concerned that because of hydraulic fracturing and some of the environmental impacts, we could see a lot more of that caused by increasing natural gas production. But what we've actually found from a water quality standpoint is that as you transition away from coal and adopt more natural gas, at least in the short term, the U.S. has been saving a ton of water resources and a ton of money and energy cleanup costs because of that. So just kind of the example that our research in 2019 concluded was that for every one megawatt hour of electricity generated with natural gas instead of coal, there's been a reduction in 280 gallons of water consumption and almost 10,000 gallons in water withdrawal. Just from that transition of retiring the older coal plants and building and implementing newer, more efficient natural gas plants. How do you see the impact of energy production on water changing in, say, 50 years? Yeah, that's a great question. So as green energy is coming online in more and more places, and as the the fraction of U.S. supply is tilting away from fossil fuels and more towards green energy. We're seeing a lot of decrease in water use and water consumption, which is really good. Um, we're seeing less impact to water resources. I've seen a lot of figures quoting the kind of life cycle water use for you know mining rare earth elements or things for green energy which those are definitely concerns and something that you'll need to keep an eye on into the future. But at the same time, you're using similar amounts of water and energy to mine natural gas and petroleum. So on that, that hand, we're kind of trading like for like in the mining sector. But then when it comes to actual power generation and the power plant side of things, a wind turbine needs cleaned with water maybe once a year. You need to rinse off solar panels a few times a year to prevent dust from reducing their efficiency. So there's still a tiny fraction of water use for those. But in those cases, it's not nearly on the, the scale or magnitude that natural gas or coal or even nuclear plant would use water. We talked a little bit about pollution, but we kind of talked about it a little bit in the abstract. Can you speak to the impacts of all of this energy drive pollution on human health? Yeah, so I'm not an expert in human health, so I can't really go into all of that. But 
you know, we can say that we have definitely seen impacts in areas where there have been spills of energy products, such as like fracking fluids or the produced water that comes from them. We had a case in, I think it was North Dakota, where they spilled the brine that was produced after oil drilling. And you can see that the saltiness just killed all of the wildlife and trees and grass in the path where you the water spilled. So, you know, there are definitely human health impacts. And while I'm an environmental chemist, I'm not a health expert. So I like to, to put the numbers out there and then, you know, give that to our teams that are experts in human health. And, you know, there's a whole field of risk assessment that looks at the the various concentrations of chemicals in the food and water that people drink, and they can kind of definitively and quantitatively say what those actual health impacts are. I I guess like one thing that I think about with green energy specifically is that as it gets becomes more and more common that it actually is better, you know, that it isn't just a literal greenwashing of, of a process. Yeah, definitely. And those are great considerations. So the, the 2019 paper that I put out, which is open access. I can share the link with you guys. You know, we we quote other studies that have done the life cycle analysis for um, wind and solar energy. And so if you'll remember, the most efficient natural gas plant uses about a quarter of a cubic meter of water per megawatt hour over its life cycle for consumption. For a solar plant, that number is 0.02 cubic meters per megawatt hour over the whole life cycle, including all of the mining and building costs. And then for wind, it's 0.001 cubic meters per megawatt hour. So in both cases, they're really much, much less substantial over the kind of life cycle of the energy source. Speaking of those megawatt hours, just so that I can have a better understanding of how that translates to like real life, (laughs) could you give us an idea of how much water it could take to charge a cell phone? So like I said before, a typical house uses about 10 megawatt hours per year. A typical phone charge can be up to about 10 watt hours. A typical phone charged only by a coal power plant consumes about two to five tablespoons of water per charge. That's a lot less than I would have thought. Yeah. And then for natural gas, if you're charging a phone with that, it's about half a tablespoon to or half a teaspoon to two teaspoons. So really kind of small consumption. But then from a withdrawal standpoint, a coal plant can do one to seven cups of water. So just pulling it in and discharging it. So one to seven cups of water per phone charge. And then natural gas is about two tablespoons in the most efficient case, up to about four cups in the least efficient. Yeah, that's honestly a relief. I thought you were going to tell us that it's like 10 gallons of water to charge a phone or something just outrageous (laughs) because there's just a lot of hidden costs of production that we don't know about. Yeah, it's it's not as bad as I was thinking either. So when I tried to do this calculation, I was was a little surprised myself. As I'm hearing that from you, it makes a fact that I read stick out quite a bit to me. Indiana leads the nation in steelmaking and energy intensive industry. And that industrial sector is our state's largest energy consumer, accounting for 46% of Indiana's energy consumption in 2020. Is there an argument to be made here that industry in general should be trying to conserve their energy consumption? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a great point. And 
as green energy takes off and as things become more efficient, companies are going to start realizing that by being more efficient, you're saving money. You know, there's like the Tide cold water commercial that says, oh, you save like $200 if you wash with cold instead of hot water. And I think things like that are going to gain a lot more traction. In grad school, we did a kind of a little exercise to see what the impacts of, you know, charging an electric vehicle versus driving just a normal vehicle were. And with coal power, they were about the same environmentally. But, you know, as as green energy becomes more and more efficient and takes a greater role in the U.S. grid mix, that's going to change a lot and electric vehicles powered 100% by renewable energy have almost no emissions. So, you know, there are things like that that are definitely coming soon. You know, the really inefficient bulldozers and things that they use at coal mining sites, if those were electric, those would have a lot less emissions, but it's going to be a while until those are, are electric. But I think soon the improvements in energy efficiency will make all of those things more cost competitive. Next, Ben Smith is the Vice President of Energy Innovation and Sustainability with the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. He talks with Taz and Devon about water, energy, and the IEDC's strategic plan for economic growth. My name is Ben Smith. I'm the Vice President of Energy Innovation and Solutions for the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, or as we like to call it, the IEDC. Um, And so really, I work with all things energy, um, you know, solar, uh, companies that are interested in manufacturing things that relate to um, energy here in Indiana. So that could be people who are doing uh, solar panel manufacturing. It could be people who are interested in manufacturing the racking system. It could be stuff related to wind, work a little bit with hydrogen stuff, a little bit with natural gas, kind of the full spectrum of anything related to energy as it relates to economic development or kind of setting the state up for having the energy system that we're interested in in the future um, on kind of the innovation side. Well, that's perfect because today we wanted to talk about the relationship between water and energy in Indiana, but specifically we want to focus on that energy piece. Uh, Could you describe Indiana's energy profile and how it relates to economic development in Indiana? Yeah, so a lot of people think of Indiana as a coal state, and historically speaking, that was pretty fair. We had a lot of coal power, but lately we've been seeing a lot of that retire. Uh, We've been seeing a lot more renewables. We've been seeing more natural gas um, kind of taking the place of that. And then if you look kind of going forward, uh, Indiana is actually number four in renewable energy projects under development. So what that means is if you want to put in a solar project or any kind of generation project, uh, you have to go through uh, an interconnection process. And there's a whole application process and there's engineering studies that happen. And so Indiana has more, the fourth largest number of those projects in the country, which we think is super cool. And why that's important is, you know, we get companies that are interested in coming to Indiana Um, whether they're doing manufacturing, whether they're making semiconductors, whether they're making electric vehicle batteries or, you know, anything else. And they're saying, you know, we want to be green. Um, We want to get our energy from renewable sources. And the more energy that we have that's available to give them, the more competitive we are. 
Um, I actually want to call out one project in particular. Uh, up in northwest Indiana, there's the Mammoth Solar Project, which is 1.3 gigawatts. Uh, if it were completed today, it would be the largest uh, single solar project in the country. So it's really exciting that we have that here in Indiana. Can you touch a little bit on the role that water plays in energy production? Yeah, so there's a couple of areas. Um, let me kind of talk high level and then I'll bring it down to Indiana. So there's a lot of hydro, uh, especially dam-based hydro out there, uh, places like New York, out west, and uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. They can produce a ton of energy for very, very cheaply. From an economic development standpoint, that's important because they get you know very low rates that are not tied to fuel cost. So that's where the water itself the energy of the water rushing through a dam is creating the electricity that's directly involved in that energy production. Yes. And so think um, like the Hoover Dam. Uh, the other important thing to realize about that is that you actually have to block the river off and the water is directed through the turbines and out the other side. Um, and so there are some of those big projects out there. Um, as lake levels have gotten lower, as there's droughts, um, if you've been following what's been happening with Lake Mead and others, um, that energy can get you know less reliable. There's also a type of hydro called run of river, which is where you don't block the the waterway. Um, you just use the energy of the water moving past to power turbines. Um, and there's a couple of those little projects in Indiana. They're not very significant, um, but they're kind of cool. The other area that water is really important um, is that power plants produce a lot of heat right? Because they're burning natural gas, they're burning coal. So thermal-based units um, produce a ton of heat and you have to cool those units off to keep them from overheating. And you do that by running water through a heat exchanger um, that's typically out in a lake. And so water is crucial for being able to run those plants at full capacity. So when you've got droughts, and those water levels are low in those cooling lakes, or when the temperature of those cooling lakes rise, you actually have to run the power plants at a lower um, output. And that's really important. So I spent three years in Texas, and that was something that we were really concerned about in Texas because typically the days that are really, really hot where you have a ton of air conditioning load are also the summers where you don't have as much water available to cool the units. So when you really need them, when you're in a drought, and it's really hot, they're less available because of a lack of water or a lack of water temperature that's the right change from the power plant's temperature to provide that cooling. Um, I've read that's also been an issue out west with some of the heat waves that they've been having. So Indiana in general does have a lot of water, but the availability of that resource is different for different parts of the state. Does that variance in availability affect the type of development that happens? So. When we have projects that come in and they need a lot of water, um, being able to get that water in the area where they want to put that development, where there's the labor shed, where there's the electrical lines, where there's the natural gas lines can be a challenge. Um, the other thing that can be a challenge is, you know, you have to bring all the water in, right? And you use it in some sort of industrial process. You also have to have a way to treat it and get it out or take it somewhere else. And that can also be a challenge. It can be very expensive. And so I don't know that I would say it's necessarily a problem, but it is a major consideration on 
you know, where things are get, get cited in Indiana or sometimes if things get cited in Indiana. What do you hear from the business community in terms of water resources and development or investment? Really, it's it's an infrastructure thing and it's the availability to, to get the water where they need it or to get the water in the sites that, you know, has the labor shed that they want or kind of the amount of people that they can draw from to employ that's in the area where they've got good access to, you know, power through the transmission lines, where they've got access to the natural gas lines, kind of where it meets their industrial needs. Um, You know, that could even be things like interstates, airports, or ports. And so, if they're not able to get the water in in a cost-effective manner or they're not able to treat it and, you know, deal with it in a cost-effective manner, then it can cause them to look at other locations and for us to potentially, you know, cite things that had um, less of a need for water in those locations. So at the very beginning, you talked about a lot of renewable energy sources that Indiana is working on. How are energy trends in general changing and how are they changing in Indiana specifically? There's a lot of demand for renewables out there, and that's, you know, I'd say it's across the country, but really it's global. Um, With the Inflation Reduction Act that was recently signed, we're seeing a lot more demand for renewables, for energy storage, um, for hydrogen. And so in the U.S., it means two things. It means that there's a lot of projects being developed in those areas And it means because of some of the provisions around domestic manufacturing, it means that there's a lot of companies that manufacture abroad that are looking at um, re-onshoring or in some cases onshoring for the first time their manufacturing operations. Um, And a number of them are actually looking at Indiana um, just because, you know, we're a compelling place to build stuff given the steel industry up in Northwest Indiana, um, given our port access, given our railroads, given our labor shed, you know, our experience with manufacturing and advanced manufacturing, and honestly, given our university environment and the number of, you know, really, really qualified grads that we have coming out of all of the universities in Indiana. How does renewable energy impact water? You're, you were talking about how when you're burning coal, when you're burning gas, you have a lot of heat. Is that the same issue that you have with, with renewable energy sources? Uh, it's not. Um, you know, a solar panel or even a wind turbine doesn't put off the kind of heat that uh, what we call a thermal resource or a resource that burns, you know, something, whether it's natural gas or coal or biomass or whatever, so it doesn't have to dissipate that heat. Now, green hydrogen or hydrogen typically produced by solar or wind energy that goes through the electrolysis process and actually splits water into hydrogen does use uh, water, obviously, because you have to have the water feed to to split. But then when that hydrogen is burned, it goes back into water. Uh, You talked a little bit about the steel making uh, industry in Indiana. This is something I didn't know until recently, but Indiana leads the nation in steel making. Um, How is that industry changing to the energy trends or is it changing at all? It's certainly changing. Um, You know, 25% of the steel that is consumed domestically is produced up in Northwest Indiana. Um, What that means is it means that Northwest Indiana actually has an emissions uh, amount from a CO2 perspective similar to London. And it's changing. I mean, you're moving to some degree. Companies are moving away from blast furnaces, um, which use coke um, to basically create steel, um, to electric arc furnaces, 
you know, as energy costs go up, they're looking at ways to be more efficient. They're looking at ways to capture the carbon off of some of those processes um, because some of those are what's called or what's termed hard to abate industries. So very fundamental industries, right? You can't stop using coal. You can't stop using cement. And, and some of them, uh, for a, at least from certain types of things, there aren't really good ways to do it with electricity or the, the heat needed is, is great. So how do you capture that carbon and store it underground? So we've got HB 1209, which deals with carbon capture and sequestration. And what it basically does is it sets out the process for um, companies that want to sequester carbon, lays out landowner rights, lays out the permitting process, at least the part of the permitting process that the state of Indiana owns. Um, and so that that really creates kind of a what I like to refer to as a three-legged stool up in northwest Indiana. So the first one is, you know, the compelling policy for it. The second one is, and I'm not a geologist, so I apologize, but we have really good geology for sequestering carbon. I'm told that it's like one of three places in the U.S. that's really good for safely sequestering carbon. The third thing is we have a lot of, you know, heavy industries that are hard to abate that really provide a lot of value to Indiana and a lot of value to the country, you know, and, and it, there, there's kind of a catch-22 here of a lot of, comp a lot of states wanting to decarbonize, but a lot of the things that are used to decarbonize are manufacturing intensive processes, right? So if you wanna to transition to the point where you're using a lot of green energy, you need a lot of solar panel racking. Solar panel racking is typically made out of steel. And so you need to have ways to produce that steel that are appropriate, right? And one of the ways that that can happen is through that carbon capture and sequestration um, and then injecting that into the geology up there. That's an interesting, uh, not conundrum, but just the fact that like, if you want to transition into renewable energy, that there still needs to be a use of old energy systems. Tell us a little bit about the 5E plan. Yeah, so the 5E plan is something that Secretary Chambers came up when he accepted the position as Secretary of Commerce. And it's obviously it's got the 5E. So the first one is the environment. And this focuses on the built environment, on making Indiana a good place to live, to work, to enjoy being. Um, the second one is the economy of the future. So how do we attract, you know, instead of looking back and saying, like, how do we get the jobs that were great in the 1970s? We look forward and we say, you know, what are the jobs that are going to be great going forward? You know, it's advanced manufacturing, it's semiconductor stuff, it's these energy transition related manufacturing. How do we bring those to Indiana and how do we create the ecosystem where, a lot of those people are thinking, okay, like we're gonna do the future, we wanna build the future, and let's do that right here in Indiana. So how do we get those companies here? Entrepreneurship, so it's great that we're bringing companies that are excited about the future to Indiana, but why don't we build some of them here too? Why don't we create that environment where entrepreneurs can connect with each other, can connect with subject matter expertise, can connect with all of the resources that they need and to help build out the things that are gonna make Indiana a great place to be you know, today, tomorrow, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Um, if you look around Indiana, you know, a lot of the big companies that are here today were started here as very small companies you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, however many years ago. And we really wanna keep up that entrepreneurial tradition. The next one is energy. 
So how do we create the energy system of the future? How do we make sure that we're taking the steps to proactively uh, have an energy system that is you know, heavy in renewables uh, because a lot of the companies coming in want a lot of renewables? How do we make sure that it's reliable? How do we make sure that it's robust so that it's not just really cheap today, but then when something changes, it becomes very expensive later, but that it you know, maybe is not the cheapest rates, but that it has very compelling rates that are very stable, which is what business owners really like and what makes uh, it very easy to keep businesses here from an energy perspective long term. And then the final one is external engagement. You know, as Hoosiers, we know that Indiana is a great place to be, but we also tend to downplay that a little bit. We tend to be very modest. And so how can we get outside of ourselves a little bit and tell that story about how awesome Indiana is, about all the things that we're doing, about the four E's that we just mentioned and the future that we're building out right here in the Midwest? That's awesome. I love hearing that uh, that idea of acknowledging all the things that everyone knows are great about Indiana, but just expanding and getting outside of ourselves. I think that's what you said exactly. Um, yeah, I just thought that was really cool. It reminds me of the Kurt Vonnegut quote, one of our great Indiana writers. Wherever you go, there's always a Hoosier there doing something important. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of different places, and I've always come across cool Hoosiers. I'll, I'll share two other quick anecdotes. I was recently out at RE+, which is I don't know if it's the largest renewables conference in the world. It's certainly the largest renewables conference in North America. Um, there were about 28,000 people there. And I met a huge number of people who either had grown up in the Hoosier State, who had some you know, fun recollection of being in the Hoosier State, had had a positive experience here. When I said I was from Indiana, I didn't get a lot of blank stares. Um, I got a lot of, you know, excitement. And then I was actually invited to give a speech for a group of manufacturers. And I was talking, you know, a little bit about economic development, about what to consider when you're bringing manufacturing to the U.S. and scaling manufacturing in the U.S. And then I was talking a little bit about why Indiana was a great place to do that. And I had somebody stand up in the back and say, I don't know you, but I'm, you know, have been manufacturing in Indiana for, you know, however long, and I'll back 90% of what you're saying. And I didn't ask him what the other 10% was, but it not, it's not only us who believe it, it's the people who work here, it's the people who live here, it's the people who choose to do their manufacturing, to own their businesses, to start their businesses here. Trying to understand the value of water means understanding how vital it is to our daily lives. Follow along this season of The Collective Tap as we dip further into the hidden life of water. In Episode 2, we will look closer at the state's critical manufacturing sector. Later in the season, we examine wastewater and the impacts of pollution on our communities. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.